Hello and welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. This is Dimitra Perich. I'm chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. And today we're back discussing the latest developments in the Ukraine war with my friend Mike Kaufman, Russian military expert at the Center for Naval Analysis. Well, Mike, it's been an eventful day. We're recording this on Saturday, October 8th, uh, the day that uh, there was a detonation on the uh, Kerch Bridge. Uh, the one bridge that's connecting Crimea to mainland Russia. It looks like at the time we're recording this in the afternoon that the rail links uh, has been the rail links have been repaired, or at least one of them, and that uh, trains are once again moving. Uh, the car traffic is resuming as well, albeit at a much slower pace. Uh, so there's definitely been an impact to the bridge, but uh, it it may not have been a full cutoff of logistics uh, going in and out of Crimea. <clears throat> and you know, it strikes me, I'm curious for your overall thoughts on this, but it strikes me that there are a few things that are important here. One, this really shows you how difficult it is to destroy bridges and rail infrastructure. Both sides have been attempting to destroy each other's infrastructure for quite some time. The Ukrainians famously have been hammering the bridges over the Dnipro, connecting the the. Uh, uh, the uh, left bank of the uh, Herson Oblast with, with the rest of the occupied territories on the other side of the river. Um, the Russians have lobbed missiles at rail links uh, that the Ukrainians have been using in, this, uh, in the uh, western part of the country. But uh, in all those cases, it has taken, uh, or particularly in the case of the Ukrainians, it has taken quite a few efforts to try to actually uh, destroy that infrastructure. And the fact that the Russians may have been able to at least somewhat repair those links, the rail links, and, and uh, resume some level automobile traffic uh, is uh, just an indication of how hard it is to destroy this uh, infrastructure. But, but secondly, uh, you know, it, it seems like the, the effects here are both symbolic. Obviously, this is a bridge that was built by uh, a friend of Putin and a major oligarch. Putin opened that bridge, famously driving a truck across it a few years ago. Uh, but it uh, is also uh, uh, obviously a key supply route to Crimea, and even though they may have been able to resume traffic, um, we, we have to expect that security is going to be tightened on this bridge, that they're going to be doing much more thorough inspections of any trucks going through it, that that's going to slow down the convoys that are going through that bridge, and, and it's going to have some, some level of impact in diminishing the amount of supplies going to Crimea. What are your overall thoughts on the situation? Okay, so so first, uh, I'm actually going to start at a, at a very different end of the conversation. I found it really interesting the Ukrainians fired and struck a rail link, what looked like a section of the rail, at Ilovaisk at the same time, which was very coordinated, and uh, we're, we're looking potentially to, to degrade the supply lines to the south, the Kherson's upper Asia, both from Crimea and both from uh, mainland Russia. So these look like coordinated strikes. If we sort of ask why, what's the purpose of them? I don't think the attack on the Kerch Bridge was just meant to be symbolic. I think it was also meant to have real operational effects. Uh, regarding the bridge itself, well, I, I think you laid it out pretty well. First, it's hard to gauge the extent of the damage. They've, uh, they've shown that to some extent they've tested and can move traffic through it. But, you know, the initial trial in that train doesn't necessarily mean that they can move 
uh, a heavy amount of weight. I think that the in, in general, these things are not easy to take down, right? And I'm no expert on, on bridges nor my engineer, but usually it's considered that the best way to take out a bridge is by an explosion underneath it rather than things striking it. Things striking it can, can make holes, then create structural damage. Uh, it's still a debate. I see a lively debate as to whether this was a, a major truck bomb or something else. I usually am inclined to a sort of Occam's razor explanation that it is what it looks like. Yeah. Um, if it, to me, if it was, if it was a more, by the way, it, it may not be one thing. Yeah. There could be multiple vectors. Sure. Sure. Uh, to me, the most important part of the bridge was actually the rail line span, not the, uh, car traffic section. And it looks like they took out one side of the automotive bridge and damaged the rail span because there was a fuel train, uh, on board, on top that was passing and caught fire from an explosion, which I don't believe is a coincidence. As an, as an analyst, you're taught, you're taught to be cautious with such coincidences, right? That the part of the bridge explodes right around the same time as the fuel train is passing and all these things uh, just happen alike. And also somebody attacked the rail line at Illavisk also at the exact same time. <laughs> and by, by the way, the timing of this is really, really hard to pull off. So whoever did this, we obviously have to presume it was the Ukrainians, uh, uh, was, it was a remarkable operation to conduct to time the explosion at the right time that the train is, is above it. Yeah, so so my sense of it is that, of, of course, it may, it may degrade Russian ability to resupply for Crimea for some time, but at least the first, first impression is that it's probably damaged, but it may not be uh, that difficult to repair, or at the very least um, won't sever the, the link uh, from Crimea to Russia across the bridge. But it's also interesting in that it definitely indicates to the Russians that that bridge is vulnerable. You know, for however many different ways they've set up to try to defend it, it's it's a really, really important uh, single point of vulnerability. And if the bridge goes down, then, you know, they still have ferries, that's true. And they still have LSDs, so they can still move vehicles around. They'll be much, much harder than having the bridge. I mean, they very much depend on on rail for logistics. Uh, regarding uh, the bridges to cross uh, the Dnieper, yeah, you're absolutely right. Actually, it's been a it's been a kind of a battle of the bridges with Ukrainians striking uh, and taking out the uh, Tanovsky Bridge, but also the the bridges by the Novokakovka Dam, and Russia has been kind of repairing them and putting up new ones at this little dam crossing, and Ukrainians have been striking over and over again. And Russian military has been using ferries. They tried to build a pontoon bridge alongside uh, the bridge at Kherson for a while. Sort of a, not, not really a pontoon, but it's kind of interesting, sort of like a modular ferry type bridge of big blocks. So it's been an interesting uh, ongoing uh, series of strikes and Russian attempts to, to retain the ability to cross the river over the last three months. So let's talk about the offensive. So there are two major fronts, right? The the Kherson front and and the um, uh, Donbass front, uh, where we're seeing progress really in several areas. In the Kherson front, we've seen Ukrainians take quite a bit of territory in the north, uh, to the north of the city, and and closing in on the city itself. You're you're seeing now the after the Kharkiv offensives. 
uh, them making progress in Luhansk. What's your assessment of where things are moving in those two directions? Right. So I generally see two fronts and maybe a third as well. So let me kind of start from the uh, eastern part of the of the map and work my way around. I think that the Russian military is absolutely the most vulnerable in Luhansk after the retreat from Liman, where they had to abandon more vehicles and more equipment. They've tried to reset on the Sonero line running from a town called Kremina, which is right by Severodonetsk, uh, up through Svetova and towards the border. I don't know how much time they've had to try to set up defenses and entrenchments there, but the big challenge they have is the Ukrainian military was pretty hot uh, moving with momentum moving up behind them, uh, there's not much left of the Western military district at all as a fighting force. And I suspect that uh, mobilized personnel, if they're going to get thrown anywhere onto the line, they'll be there first. We can get to that later in the conversation. But I think here Ukraine has momentum, and there's already some fighting where it looks like they're trying to interdict the road running uh, north to south. So it it's, depends whether... The Ukraine military choose to advance on Crimea. If they do that, then it tells us that they're probably going to circle down and try to get around Severodonetsk and Lysychansk and recapture those cities. Or if they're going to go for Svatovy, right? If they go for Svatovy, then, then it gives us a different indicator and tells us that they want to expand the advance into northern Luhansk, right? And, um, and, and really put Russian forces and positions there in jeopardy. Uh, if you look towards the middle, there's a sense of there's a bunch of kind of po- pointless Russian fights for uh, Bakhmut and for Avdiivka that have been ongoing, and Wagner supported. They've been going on for a number of months now, right? Yeah, since July. Wagner and uh, some Russian troops have made progress around Bakhmut. This is, to be perfectly honest, I think a completely pointless operational axis of advance because there's no way that this turns into any kind of ability to really attack uh, Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. I think the main reason this is happening, this is my own speculation, is just for Prigozhin to show that his forces are taking territory while the rest of the regular Russian military is doing poorly, even though it's in the service of nothing, right? Like it's sort of a tactical advance in the service of no strategic game. Once Russia lost uh, Kharkiv and they lost their position in the Zoom, they have no northern axis of advance to Slavyansk, right? So the entire thing is pointless, I think, from a, from a military perspective. But so, so this is basically the best advance in the traditions of the old Soviet World War II fights when you had lots of people being thrown at uh, pointless battles and, and, and tremendous loss of life. Yeah, I, I honestly don't even think that there's a tremendous loss of life. I think these are small advances made by primarily Wagner forces, but it's not clear what they're going to do. At this point, there's, there's zero utility, I think, in, in what they're doing. And, and the same thing in the Russian attempts to surround and develop Avdiivka by Donetsk. And then if we go further south, there's a big question on you know, whether or not there'll be another Ukrainian offensive, like a third offensive in, in Zaporizhia. That's a big question mark because no idea whether Ukraine has the additional forces beyond what they're throwing at Lohansk and what they're throwing in Kherson to do that. That obviously would be one of the more dangerous COAs for the Russian military, but they're, they're, at, they're deployed in the south. So I think they've been but anticipating that uh, in the last couple of months. And if you read some of, the, some of the articles that have come out, especially from the New York Times, a sort of sensational story about 
how Ukraine originally supposedly intended to conduct an offensive there, but then, you know, through, through other things, was convinced to change plans over the course of the summer. So it indicates... So th- this is the offensive that would cut off that famous land corridor to Crimea, hitting perhaps all the way to Mariupol or at least Berdansk and, and cutting off the Russian troops uh, in, in half. Yeah, the most dangerous core for the Russian military is the Ukraine offensive that cuts from Zaporizhia south to Mediatopol. Severs Mediatopol, severs both the rail line and the other ground lines of communication, splits the force, and then begins to anchor itself further south towards Crimea, so that you have essentially Ukrainian troops east of the Dnieper and you have Ukrainian troops pressing against Russian forces west of the Dnieper, right? That that probably would be the most disastrous uh, outcome for the Russian military, which sort of in the conversation, I think, takes us to your son. And this is a discussion on the Russian foothold west of the river or what's called the, the right river bank, right side river bank. So there, you know, the fighting, I think it actually has been really hard since the end of August when Ukraine started this military operation. They had initially an early success at David of Brud, but after, you know, making, making it some distance into Russian lines, the offensive then became more of a grinding push. And the Ukrainian plan was always not to conduct kind of a large-scale mechanized offensive against a larger concentration of Russian forces. But the push in, attrition them over time, and then press them out of the position across the river. And also not to get into a place where they would have to have a fight for Kherson, the actual city. Because it would mean destroying the city, and actually Kherson is a relatively undamaged city in this war. So I think the Ukrainian objective is not to take the regional capital by having to level it. Uh, and, and this offensive had gone on for you know about a month, and to be frank, the Ukrainian military in that area hadn't made much progress. They made some sensational, you know, sensational uh, progress and great success in Kharkiv, right, and pushed, then pushed Russian forces after two weeks out of Liman as well. And then in the last week, you saw that the Ukrainian military was able to push from the very northern part of the pocket. This is, uh, you know, sort of the, the operational direction coming south from Krivi Rig, and they were able to push uh, along the river, looks like all the way to about uh, Dukhani this town, and they, and they forced the Russian troops to retreat across a pretty wide front, and they pushed in something like maybe 20 kilometers almost. Uh, and, but it doesn't look like the situation there is at all similar to anything you saw in Kharkiv, for very particular reasons. In Kharkiv, there were very few Russian troops, right? And many of the forces defending uh, those positions were not actual troops at all. You know, it was everything from Ross Guardia to mobilized uh, LNR, and kind of the battered remnants of the Western Military District and some low-morale troops from 11th Corps Kaliningrad, you know, who were apparently actually routed and gave up their positions pretty quickly. In Kherson, you have what what's left of the, the sort of the rest of the Russian military in terms of the airborne, uh, some of the better units of the Eastern Military and the Southern Military District. And there you have a higher density of forces relative to terrain being held. So it looks like they retreated quite a bit. But again, that, that offensive has now somewhat slowed down. I think it's going to be a grinding fight where you're going to have a sort of gradually, then suddenly, you know, if you, the, the Russian military is attrited, then it gives up terrain, then it retreats. Then again, there's a reset and some more of a grinding fight. I would say that my impression is that uh, these concurrent offensives 
look very different. Like Ukrainian military is able to consistently envelop or partially envelop Russian forces in the east, force them into a retreat where they suffer losses, abandon equipment, take casualties, then take a week or so and press up to their next line and try to do that again. In Kherson, what you're seeing is a different story. I think the casualties and losses are much higher. A lot of the anecdotal evidence I've seen, a lot of the visual evidence I've seen suggests that the fighting is pretty brutal there. There's a lot of more close quarters armored combat there. There's a lot of shelling from both sides. And there, there are significant losses probably on both sides too. Just my impression. Okay. And, um, but, but, in, but remember, Ukraine can easily shift along interior lines, forces, from one front to the other. In a way, the Russian military can't. And one of the big things that's interesting about the attack on the bridge, the Kirkstreet Bridge, is that the Russian military principally needs to go all the way around into Crimea by rail and then out of Crimea around Rostov to shift units over to that eastern front of Luhansk and Donetsk. And that takes a long time. That actually takes a week plus. And if you, if you damage that bridge, you can actually really sabotage their ability to make these big movements. They really slow them down. Whereas Ukraine can shift uh, fairly quickly from Kherson to Donetsk or to Luhansk and back again. It can reinforce. That's one of the, big, that's one of the several principal advantages the, advantages the Ukrainian military has in this war. So it's been now a couple of weeks since uh, Putin announced partial mobilization. <clears throat> we had a podcast, last podcast, talking about this right before, or right after, I should say, that, that announcement. Um, now that we've uh, we've seen some of the effects of that mobilization the last couple of weeks, how broad it is, the, the impact on the Russian attitudes as well, um, it looks like some of the people are being sent directly into battle, some are given maybe a couple of weeks of training, what are your overall impressions on how mobilization is going thus far? Well, it's a good question. If we're discussing the process or the outcome, you know, because the the process looks like a hot mess. Uh, it looks about as one might expect the Russian military and civilian authorities trying to pull off a process that they really haven't done in, in practice since World War II and probably haven't seriously tested in quite some time. Also, they abandoned a mass mobilization army as a model years ago. They went to a tiered readiness force and a partial mobilization model, right? Yes, there's a mobilization element, but the military wasn't optimized necessarily to suddenly take in hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of troops. It was more designed to go plus up from 70% manning to 100% manning, but that's quite less than, that's considerably less than the amount, the amount of people they're trying to take in. So my first and it's very telling, right, that they've actually had to delay the uh, fall conscript drive uh, because they don't have anywhere to put the conscripts sure. because they're mobilizing for the war. Sure. Also, was going to train them. Like you know, I'm I'm confident that they don't have enough people to train however many thousands of mobilized personnel they're taking in. And then imagine if somebody dumps 120,000 new conscripts on them too. Where are these people going to be trained, right? Uh, there's no throughput for this. Capacity-wise, I'm actually surprised by a number of people they're trying to draw in this initial phase of mobilization. Because remember when we discussed it before, one of the things I mentioned, I thought their actual ability to process and absorb would be very limited. So Shoyu could make up any number of men that he wants to mobilize, but but the system can only actually absorb so many at a time. And so I was a bit shocked to see how many they're trying to gather. And of course, you have a, you have a, 
two-tier mobilization process. First, you have the regional civil authorities going around trying to meet a quota. And they're basically gathering up all sorts of men, many of them who don't meet the military's criteria, right? They're just trying to make their numbers. Anyone that's protesting or trying to escape the country may end up being mobilized, right, regardless of military experience. Yeah, anyone can get mobilized regarding a military experience, right? And that's actually not, just to be clear, that's not the military's intent. And then they get to the Vayan Kamat and... Uh, and the military is basically got a double filtration system. They look at a lot of people, and it's a mixed bag. Some of them they send back, back because they say they're unqualified. Others they keep because they need to make their initial numbers. But I think that the way the process is going is is there there there's a fundamental problem in that the actual mobilization is being done by the regions, right, by the oblasts, and it's being done by. Uh, in many cases, civilian authorities who are serving these notices and the support of civilian authorities, and they're just trying to make these numbers. And the military is essentially having all these people dumped on them that aren't necessarily qualified at all uh, or don't don't meet the criteria. They're not trying to figure out what to do with them. And, you know, as the process, I'll say this. On the one hand, you see it's clearly unpopular. You saw several hundred thousand Russian men leave the country. Uh, I'll say that's still a pretty tiny amount relative to the mobilization base. The mobilization base is many upon many millions of men, not hundreds of thousands. It's not clear to me how many men they're trying to mobilize, but it looks like far more than I anticipated in this initial wave. It looks like well over maybe 100,000 or so, just gauging by the quotas and the numbers that are being brought in. A lot lot of uh, talk on the Russian blogosphere that the order for mobilization envisions up to 1 million men. Not clear that that's been confirmed yet, but um, at least potential for many more mobilized. I, uh, my view of it is that I don't think they have any actual ceiling in mind. I think they're going to see how mobilization goes. I think the big question is what's this going to look like a couple of months from now, not what it looks like in the first two weeks. In the first two weeks, it was bound to look like a disaster. I was co- pretty confident of that. And the big question was, to what extent will Russians protest? So far, the protests haven't been significant outside of the, some of the ones you saw in places like Dagestan relative to the, to the actual impact implications of the process, but that could change. The thing I was looking forward to see was whether or not the regions would cooperate because the process has to go through the regions and they have to fund a lot of those too. And it generally does look like the regions are cooperating. It was a big question of to what extent would regional authorities try to sabotage the process or not. It does look like they are trying to meet their quotas. On the military side, there are all sorts of challenges you're going to have from absorption capacity, equipment, uh, training these people. looks like the initial batch are going to get maybe two weeks of some kind of familiarization training and then maybe thrown onto the line to try to stabilize things. I think the first thing they will do is take all the empty shells of Western military district units, which are badly mauled and kind of uh, across the board, mostly combat and effective, and try to flood these mobilized personnel into those Western military district units and try to basically raise, redeploy them back onto the line in a desperate attempt to stabilize the situation ahead of the winter. That's That's the best guess. So let's talk about military leadership. One of the things that strikes me is how many, how much change we've seen on that front just in the last seven and a half months of this war, right? You had Dvornikov, who gets announced as kind of commander of overall forces in, I believe, April. 
couple months later, he's gone. You had Surdikov being replaced as head of Airborne Forces, Zhuravlov, head of Western Military District, Chaiko, head of Eastern Military District, Bulgakov, head of Logistics, now Osipov, uh, head of Black Fleet, replaced as well. Uh, we've had uh, Kadyrov and Prigozhin uh, criticizing very brutally Lapin, who is uh, still in charge of the Central Military District, and now the announcement today that Sorovikin uh, is, is in charge of the um, uh, Joint Grouping of Forces. Uh, he was pre- previously running the Southern Military District, but it seems like pretty much the only people that haven't yet been replaced are Shoigu and Gerasimov. What do you make of this uh, rapid changes that has been taken really across most of the Russian military in the last seven and a half months? And uh, what's your view of Sorovikin? Okay, sure. Just about the comment, that's kind of a one-finger comment. Wurtskoy is still there <laughs> as head of directorate, <laughs> main general staff, main directorate of operations. Remember, I, I, it's my hobby horse. I harp, I harp quite a bit. The Wurtskoy is still there no matter who gets fired. <laughs> it's actually quite <laughs> remarkable. Uh, but, yeah, though, so here's my view. First, they, they did fire quite a few officers for cause, some of them rather late, like uh, the head of the Black Sea Fleet. They've tried to throw officers into this command position when they couldn't make progress because the military means fundamentally are not a, are not there to achieve the desired political objectives, right? And there's no way like, – I don't think I think the best officer in the world couldn't possibly reconcile the dramatic mismatch between Putin's goals and what the military actually can do and has available to it, especially – some little two weeks ago, we had declared mobilization, right? If he had declared mobilization in April, this would have been a much more dangerous course of action. Uh, it would have put the Russian military potentially in a different position at this point in the war. Like Putin squandered all this time. And instead, instead of making any significant decisions, they just kept firing and rotating generals. So, yeah, it's, it feels like the... But the main commanders there now are probably Surovikin. Surovikin was the, the former head of aerospace forces, then got assigned the southern grouping of forces, which is really the largest one. And he was de facto, I think, more in charge of things in this war, because once they redeployed the eastern military district units to his theater, he was essentially in charge of most of the forces in general. And then Lapin had the Central Military District probably now and what's pretending to be the Western Military District's forces in the fight at this point. And that's likely, it's likely my guess is between somebody like Surveik and Lapin with people like Ritzkoy coordinating overall uh, at the general staff level. Uh, as, I was going to say, as far as Gerasimov Shoigu goes, well, I don't know what relevance Shoigu has to anything or has had in a while, right? but Putin clearly refuses to fire him. Uh, Gerasimov, I have this impression, and this is just from reading articles and things of that nature, that Gerasimov is not involved in any aspect of running the war, but he is involved in kind of filtering information to Putin, and clearly at some point Putin probably became dissatisfied with what he was hearing, and that's where stories began coming out that he's calling the theater commanders directly to figure out what's going on and to give them strategic guidance. And I read multiple stories. I'm sure you did, too. People, I think, misread that for Putin making tactical decisions, Hitler style, you know, looking on a map and moving pieces around. That's very unlikely. Just so folks know, this is Putin's fifth war, and I've never seen him try to do that. And I've never seen him claim uh, in prior wars that he actually had 
any kind of military acumen where he would give specific orders. That said, it is rather likely that he does call commanders. And if Surovikin says, hey, Russian positions are in, in Kyrgyzstan is precarious and would like the, the option to retreat, Putin probably told him no, because Putin's goals are to annex Kyrgyzstan and to get all that territory. And Putin likely has been denying these commanders the ability to retreat and, in effect, placing them in some tumble position. So I learned more from that is that Putin's not willing to listen to sound military advice. Because I can't imagine that Russian commanders, from my point of view, Russian commanders probably understand the situation perfectly well. And the Russian blogosphere, the military blogosphere, also understands it fairly well, too, if you read it. You know, like they understand the calamitous situation that the Russian military is in, and that it's going from bad to worse. I don't, I don't know what you think about that, Dmitry. If you read the same things I do, it looks it looks pretty clear to a lot of people back in Russia too. I don't think they're at all confused about about the people are very alarmed, yeah. very alarmed. But today there was a lot of sort of complimentary um, talk of Surovikin, how great he is. Kadira famously saying that he's worked with with him for fifteen years and he's fantastic. What's your view on him? Uh, I think my view of him is that he's a ruthless hothead. He's known for having a temper. He's known for uh, uh, being a very stern officer, on the one hand. On the other hand, I, I think that, that some people see him as being fairly competent. But I, I, I don't think that people like him necessarily will, will really make the difference. I really think it's a question of unit commanders on the ground, morale, the extent to which they're supported, the extent to which they feel that their situation is defensible. I don't think you can plug anybody in charge to necessarily make a difference in this war, especially if Putin's calling people like Surovikin and saying, hey, uh, I understand that the military situation may be untenable, but you can't, you can't retreat or withdraw. That's happening. That's very difficult for any commander to, to perhaps salvage the situation. And to be honest, I don't think his, this promotion, this official promotion, does him any favors. If I was in the Russian military, the one job I would not want is to be the Joint Force Commander for this war. I would want Lord Skor's job to sit in the general staff and be the head of the main director of operations and not get fired while everybody else around me does. Well, there's, there's a centuries-old tradition going back to the Tsarist times of finding the fall guy, right, in the Russian government. So uh, maybe he's the latest one to take the blame for this. Well, you saw what happened to Dvornikov, right? How uh, he was in charge for a hot minute and then they pulled him. And then it, it looked like maybe Zhutko was in charge and then Zhutko went back to... From the looks of it, um, he, he, he is either back to being commander of Eastern Military District or not. It's hard to tell, but it doesn't look like he's in charge anymore. So, yeah, I don't know if, I don't know if this does Dornik of any favors, especially since he's getting appointed not a time when the Russian military is doing anything successfully, but a time it's actually losing pretty badly. Let's talk about uh, the nuclear threat. Um we, you and I probably disagree a little bit on this, but um, you certainly had a lot of news coming out this week that uh, from President Biden saying at a fundraiser that uh, the threat of the usage of nuclear weapons is the highest it's been since the Cuban Missile Crisis and <clears throat> general worry about potential use of tactical nuclear weapons. You know, wh- where do you see things now? You know, I've talked that, uh, you know, a tactical nuclear weapon would not necessarily help things on the battlefield. But, um, you know, my view is that Putin may end up use, using it as a demonstration, particularly to pressure the West. Um, 
because he, I think, views uh, the West as being able to control Zelensky uh, falsely, uh, in my view. But um, do you do you do you think that um, the chances are higher now that uh, he will cross that nuclear taboo? Okay, so here's my my view on it. I think that right now the risk of nuclear escalation is like it's probably quite low. I think that in the interim, it's lower because between the choice of sort of retrenchment, mobilization, and escalation, which are not mutually exclusive options, but the, between them, uh, Putin clearly went for mobilization, the politically riskiest one. And I suspect he's going to wait to see how that pans out, if they can salvage the situation or not. I think long term, I expect we agree here, long term, the risk has definitely grown because as of mobilization and annexation, he's fully committed the regime to this misadventure. And he also really cut his options for uh, revising minimal warnings with annexation, right? I mean, what's he going to do? I go, go back and say, we didn't mean to annex these things. We're going to undo these laws. And this big signing to ceremony that he held. So in a lot of ways, I, I do think that uh, even though the risk right now is quite low, it will definitely grow over time because of the stakes. The stakes is great. Okay. That said... I still think that the likelihood of, uh, of this war ending in some manner or a Russian conventional defeat without nuclear escalation is quite higher than the likelihood of Russian nuclear escalation, right? Nuclear powers have fought wars and lost them since the advent of nuclear weapons without resorting to nuclear use. Now, they have, in a number of cases, resorted to nuclear threats. Attempts at nuclear coercion are not new. They also have a terrible track record in terms of efficacy, as you can observe actually in this war too. Again, see how much Putin has gotten out of his nuclear threats. He's gotten some. And, and by the way, this is really this is really striking to me, Mike, because having talked to some Ukrainians over the last couple of weeks, I mean, they're almost saying, "Go ahead and nuke us. We're ready for it." If that's what it takes to to win over Russia, I, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, people in in Kiev and elsewhere are getting quite hardened uh, and are certainly not going to relent to these threats. Yeah, I don't think that nuclear coercion will work, but if we're talking about actual options, look, there's, you can see a, a pretty sub- substantial or significant gradient of options from anything starting from underground nuclear testing, above ground, uh, nuclear demonstration somewhere out of the theater, nuclear demonstration inside the theater at the Black Sea, high altitude nuclear explosion that, you know, has effects but doesn't necessarily uh, result in casualties or, or destruction on the ground. And if you, I think if you are going to see nuclear employment, then the yeah, battlefield is definitely not what I think of when I look at Russian uh, strategy and writing for on nuclear escalation, sorry, sorry, on escalation management and war termination. It's not a discussion on battlefield employment because it's a clear category of war, war fighting, nuclear employment for the purpose of war fighting. That is one thing. What we are discussing is escalation management war termination, which is different, right? And there, if there's going to be nuclear employment, might, you might see something, and I'm just basing this off of a lot of military writing, but I, but I think it's quite relevant in this case. Um, you might see something along the lines of single strike against some kind of critically important object, maybe a, an active or passive military target well, well beyond the front, right? And the purpose of it is... It's principally political and psychological is not necessarily to have uh, battlefield effects. Okay, that said, I do want to make a comment because I've, I've read something in the last two weeks that got me to think. And, and I've read a lot of opinions 
that nuclear weapons really, you know, aren't that useful on the battlefield. And something to the extent of that they're more, like, large explosives. And I want to tell you something. That is not the case. Okay? Nuclear weapons can have effects on the battlefield. They have attendant effects well beyond anything like a large explosive. All right? Radiation, environmental, electromagnetic, psychological. They also have synergistic effects when used in groups, in numbers that other weapons may not. I want folks to be overly cautious and not being dismissive about the potential what nuclear weapons can do. I don't believe that Russia is going to use them in this way, right? But I also am very wary of the of some of the conversation I've seen that, well, if Russia uses nuclear weapons, it's not a big deal. I mean, how much military effect can they really have? Yeah, be careful with that theory. Um, sir, I, I certainly don't think anybody in the front line will, will interpret it the same way, okay? And, and keep in mind that nuclear weapons, whatever you may think of, uh, of what they do, and just to be clear, the number of people I've, I've seen in that discourse versus the number of people that I think credibly actually have expertise on nuclear weapon effects, that correlation isn't very good. And I'm not one of them either. That's why I'm not in that conversation. But just to be saying, if someone's professionally worked in this field, I wouldn't be overly dismissive about the potential effects of nuclear weapons. I just don't think that that's something Russia is going to do in this war. Like, I don't think nuclear employment for war fighting is what's being discussed. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. And, and I agree with you that the likelihood is still very low, but increasing because Putin is, is cornering himself. The one area we probably disagree is that um, I, I find it hard to, to find a way that Russia admits a loss in this war with Putin still in charge. Because while great powers do lose wars and Russia's lost wars, Putin is making this an existential war for his own regime with the annexations and with the mobilizations and the other actions he's taken. So, you know, I find it hard to imagine right now that he would admit a loss before exhausting all escalation options, including a demonstration of a nuclear weapon. Um, that, that's the one area where I'm very concerned about. Sure. But I may disagree on our disagreement, but as I think I largely agree with you, However, <laughs> here's my view of it. First, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times in war, it's up to the loser to decide when the war is over. So even in the worst case scenario, Putin never has to admit defeat, right? He's probably going to keep the war going as long as he's in charge. And at the, very, uh, at the very least, we can assume that he may agree to some ceasefire operational pause, but only to rearm. And I think that's actually something he might be looking for to stabilize Russia's situation, have mobilization, uh, bring some kind of desired effects. And then he'd restart the war anyway. So even if there was a ceasefire to this war, it would only buy you a second war. But I think the real challenge is that, okay, let's consider the options beyond nuclear escalation. We put nuclear escalation aside in the box for a second. What are the alternatives? First, there are still escalation alternatives between where we are now and nuclear employment, right? Critical infrastructure attacks, maybe not necessarily in Ukraine, actually, but escalation between Russia and Western countries. Many things that Russia hasn't done yet. Not saying they do great things for Russia, but there's options there. Next, you know, he he doesn't have to resort to nuclear weapons, even as Russian forces are being defeated. He can go with retrenchment, right? Not concede the fact that Russian forces have been defeated, but still actually permit a retreat and withdrawal and keep the war going. And basically try to exhaust Ukraine and try to exhaust the West over time. Just push this war through 2023. 
lastly, I mean, I agree with you that I don't see how this war ends in a defeat for Russia, and then Putin stays in charge for long after that. I'm skeptical of it. Well, I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of it. I agree with you there. Uh, and, and that, but that comes to a debate, because then there's other folks that say, hey, this, this regime is largely coup-proof. It's a personal authoritarian system, and people like him do a good job of making sure that uh, they've, they've successfully protected the regime from any coup. To which I typically say, well, that's true. That's why you can't predict regime change in these types of systems because everybody looks very loyal until the very last minute. I'm certainly reminded of uh, a phrase by one famous Russian military analyst that everything is contingent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah, it's uh, pretty, yeah, it's contingent and <laughs> it depends. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I want to address one more thing here. <clears throat> Not sure if you have any thoughts on this, Mike, but... Um, I've been hearing over last week uh, from a number of Ukrainian sources a lot of concern over the Starlink situation where they've been seeing periodic outages um, of Starlink communications around the front line, both in um, the Donbass as well as Kherson. And um, uh, this has been quite significant in terms of operational impact from Ukrainians from what I'm hearing there's a lot of dependence on Starlink for military communications, but also for ISR. They're using them to 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 look at um, uh, uh, to look at drone videos um, and um, improve artillery targeting and a variety of other things. And uh, I tweeted Elon Musk early in the week uh, asking if this is a decision by by SpaceX to turn off um, Starlink uh, in occupied areas. Uh, as uh, some of the Ukrainians are suspecting. I have not gotten a response. So, Elon, if you're listening, give me a call. Let me know if this is uh, uh, intentional or not. But hopefully this will get resolved uh, in the coming weeks because um, the Ukrainians are uh, quite uh, concerned. Um, and, and, and it shows you how important satellite communications has become in this war and how important uh, real-time video links uh, has become for ISR targeting on the battlefield so um, hopefully um, there'll be a resolution to, to this issue soon. Mike, what, what else do you um, think we, we haven't covered in this discussion? Any other topics you want to address? Man, I, think we, I think we haven't covered too much what sort of the, the near term to medium term looks like, right? My sense of it is that probably uh, as winter approaches and, and weather conditions become a significant factor for military operations. The Ukraine probably is going to try to take as much territory back as they can over the coming month. I think the Kherson operation is actually proceeding largely as intended, although it's quite costly in terms of the fighting there, where where the idea is over time slowly to press Russian forces out. I'm not sure what Ukrainian aims are in Luhansk right now. I think that's where the Russian situation probably looks most desperate. But the question is, Scott, what happens when the winter approaches, right? And from my point of view, probably the world will become less dynamic. It'll move more into an attrition fight where the Ukrainian military will try to eat away at the Russian military over time, put itself in a good position. And, and is that because you think mobility will get harder in, in, in the winter time? Yeah, I think mobility will get harder. I think supply will get harder. I think that uh, the Russia is also taking a risk deploying this mobilized army into the winter. If they haven't properly equipped or supplied them, they're taking a significant risk of what could happen with that army. 
I think for the Ukrainian military as well. They're, they also might honestly need a break. They might need to consolidate territory they've captured and get additional ammunition and supplies, right? It's hard to sustain momentum in offensive operations like this. So they too might might uh, need a pause. And then look to switch more to a war of attrition to either wait the Russian military and then be in a much better position coming out of the winter into the spring. And I think I think the Russian goal ultimately is to try to extend this war by any means and to try to actually make it a longer war that drags well out into 2023, into the next winter. That's my impression. I, I, I suspect you think very much the same. I recall when you wrote early on, you wrote about this, that the real challenge in, in this war is, is time now and how to manage the implications of time. Uh, That's right. My, my, my uh, only thought on this is that I'm sure Putin would like this scenario to play out, as you say. I, I don't know whether they have the supplies to last them a long time, particularly artillery and other munitions um, that they're using at, a, at an increased rate. Obviously, they're trying to ramp up production, but we've talked about do they have the chemicals? Do they have um, the capacity to produce as much as they need? So that's going to be the big question mark around the longevity of this um, of this war. Yeah, I mean, look, if we if we assess the rate at which you're losing now, you know, you could definitely get the the notion that this is not going to be as long a war as, as Russians hope it will, right? That they're actually going to lose this much faster. If not... So if not going into this winter, then then coming out of it, that the situation is actually quite critical for the Russian military. Uh, but, you know, I often say this not really knowing about the state and what's going on on the Ukrainian side of the equation, what the state of the Ukrainian military is and how far they can sustain momentum. So the to what extent to what extent the Russian military actually has time is very debatable. And that goes back to our discussion of escalation, right? If the Russian military lose gradually over time, you know, my, uh, my kind of thesis that Putin is the master procrastinator, that as long as something bad is happening slowly to his plans, he'll wait for a very long time to make any hard decisions. Uh, if, if the Russian military suddenly collapses, you have a real break in the cohesion of forces across the entire theater, then you and I might very quickly go back to, re, to a conversation about what is the risk of nuclear escalation, because that might, might increase considerably. The other thing that's really interesting to watch is the psychological impact of these major losses that they're suffering, right? The Kharkiv offensive that was so successful for the Ukrainians, the fall of Liman, uh, now they hit on the Kerch Bridge. Every single time this happens, there seems to be more and more alarmism that's coming through both the blogosphere, even on the mainstream Russian news channels, more criticism erupting, if not at Putin himself yet, at the Russian military. So if you're going to see something like what we both think is likely, which is the fall of her song, and maybe even uh, major cities being um, reoccupied by Ukrainian forces in Luhansk, that's going to have, uh, that's going to add to the, the pressure on political pressure on Putin, on the Russian military, that is really hard to predict how that's all going to end up. Sure. And I think one of the big questions is, what is the cascade effect of, of defeat, right, on morale? Does his forces lose? Then uh, it it can become infectious. You could see you could see entire fronts collapse. In some ways, the way things played out in in Kharkiv, where you saw some troops break and abandon their positions, and you saw what what I think the Russian general staff intended to be a retreat became a rout, just a disorganized kind of panic situation. Uh, it, 
The other thing I'm hearing, Mike, is that the Ukrainians are really ramping up information operations, trying to get the Russian forces to surrender and bombarding them through a variety of different uh, electronic means with um, information on how they can do that so that they don't um, die in this war. And as more mobilized forces flow into this conflict, they're not necessarily well-motivated and uh, have high morale. You, you may see uh, increased effects of those campaigns um, having an impact. We saw, I think, one video this week of, uh, of an um, armored vehicle crew surrendering uh, to the Ukrainians. Um, we may see more of that um, down, down the road. But Mike, thanks for another fascinating conversation, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. And I uh, promise you this war is going to continue, unfortunately, for some time, and uh, we're going to be back to analyze it. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me back.